Amen. And now if you would please take your Bible and open with me to the very last book, and that is the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, and we will consider just the first part of verse number 1 this evening. Revelation chapter number 1, and I will read the first part of verse number 1. This is God's holy word. John writes to us, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Amen. One time many years ago, when I was a teenager at youth camp, the pastor got up and announced that he was preaching to us youth about Jesus coming again. And at the beginning, at outset of that message, he made the remark, now you young people need to understand Jesus could come back at any moment. He could even, in fact, come back before this sermon is over. And then that brother went on to preach, I kid you not, for two and a half hours. <laughs> two and a half hours. I'm going to try not to do that this evening, but he did. No kidding. About an hour and a half in, one of my good friends who had the spiritual gift of sarcasm leaned over and whispered in my ear, you know what, I think he's right. The Lord is going to come before he finishes this sermon. Well, maybe or maybe not, the Lord will come back tonight before I finish this sermon. I don't know. He could or he could not. But if he does not, we are embarking to study and understand this, what has been understood to be the most mysterious and difficult book of Holy Scripture, the book of Revelation. One pastor that I listened to this week remarked that not long ago, there was a survey taken of both pastors and church members regarding the book, in the case of church members, that they would like most to hear taught through or preached through. And their answer was, we would like to hear most the book of Revelation taught or preached through. And then they asked pastors, what is the one book of the Bible that you would least like and most hesitate to teach through or preach through? And you know what their answer was? You guessed it. The book of Revelation. What people in the church seem to want to hear most is what the preachers in the church seem to want to preach the least. And that is because of the vivid imagery that fills this book, uh, the grandiose, mysterious nature of the language of this book. Just what does it mean? And that is the question that we're going to try to tackle over these next few months or perhaps even years as the Lord leads. But just as when you're getting ready to build a house and you've purchased a piece of property, say in that property has a lot of of brush and, and undergrowth on it, maybe some small trees. Before you lay that foundation and before you begin to build, you, you've got to do some clearing work. You've got to get rid of the bushes and you've got to smooth out the, the property and, and, and site prep it a little bit before you begin to build. And in the same way, when you come to begin a study of the book of Revelation, before you actually begin to exposit the material, there's some groundwork you've got to do. You've got to clear the way because, as you probably know, throughout church history and the history of biblical interpretation, there has been no small dissent regarding how to in understand and to interpret 
this last book of the Bible. There's division in the church regarding what does it mean and when does it refer to what it's talking about. And so this evening, I just want us to, as it were, dip our toes into the pool. We're not going to wade out very deeply this week into the actual text. That's for next time. But what I want to do is some groundwork this evening, if I might, surveying a couple of different scriptures in the book to help us sort of get our arms around the way in which we are and ought to understand this book in its interpretation. And so doing that, the way I want to try to helpfully articulate our approach to this book is share with you some preliminary considerations regarding Revelation. Some things that is that as you're reading and hearing and interpreting the book of Revelation, some things that will inform all of those. First, let me mention some wrong attitudes. Some wrong attitudes that perhaps have been common about the book of Revelation. The first is what we might call marginalization. Marginalization. That means uh, making light of it. Uh, dismissing it as it were. Uh, no less than Martin Luther, uh, the great German reformer, himself said regarding the book of Revelation, I find nothing here edifying for the saints. Now one thing you've got to appreciate about Martin Luther, he was never one to hold back about how he felt. He always told you how he felt. And how he felt when he read the book of Revelation is, I find nothing here edifying for the saints. It's just too mysterious. I don't understand what he means. In fact, he said the same thing of the Old Testament reading that we had tonight from Zechariah 14. As Luther was commentating on Zechariah, he put down his quill and pen and he ended his commentary on the book of Zechariah and said, quote, Here I give up for I have no idea what the prophet is referring to. You might feel that way when you read the Bible sometime. You might feel that way when you read the book of Revelation sometime. And that feeling of it's too hard to understand might tend to cause you and I to want to marginalize the book. I can't understand it, so why should I even try to understand it? Well, if that's you, what you need to remember is Paul's words to Timothy. And that is, all scripture, including the book of Revelation, is given by inspiration of God and is therefore profitable. This book is profitable for us, so let us not marginalize. Another wrong attitude might be that of fear. You might be prone to look at the world around you and think this is apocalypse now. And you would to some degree be right. But you might use that to cause this, this disturbing fear of reading the book of Revelation and seeing how bad the world is and perhaps how bad the world is going to get. And that fear drives you to sort of ignore the book. But doing that loses sight of the forest for the trees. Because after all, after all, what is the title of this book? It is the revelation, by the way, not revelations, okay? Maybe that's something you can carry away if nothing else. This is not plural revelations. This is the apocalypsis. That is the unveiling singular. What is unveiled in this book primarily? The revelation, verse number one, of Jesus Christ. This is the unveiling revealing culmination of how our Savior will gloriously triumph one day over all the forces of evil. And in the end, 
all that is wrong in the world, all that is bad in the world, all that is backwards and upside down in the world will one day become a distant memory for the saints and elect church of God. And one day, dear church, he will wipe away every tear. We don't read Revelation with fear, but joy, celebration, and anticipation. That's why this book was written, incidentally, to a group of hotly persecuted Christians in the first century who were seeing wicked emperors issue edicts for the arrests of their loved ones. And they would watch as soldiers and officers would come and invade their churches and invade their homes and drag them off to the judgment bar, sentence them to be burned at the stake or fed to lions or any other number of horrible, atrocious persecutions and deaths and bloodsheds. And as they were given this book, they were to read that no matter how dark the night, no matter how hard the difficulty, no matter how difficult and intense the pain, your Savior will win in the end. And you need not fear, church of God. God is in control. There's no need to fear. Another attitude that we need to avoid when we read Revelation is apathy. Apathy. Apathy is one of the most intense problems I feel myself as a pastor recognizing among the people of God. Not only with the book of Revelation specifically, but more toward the things of God generally. Why even bother? I really don't care. It doesn't really mean too much to me. You might say something like, I don't really know my view of the end times. I don't understand all this eschatology stuff. It's, it's difficult. I've seen men on platforms with charts and graphs and math books and calculators. And everybody who's predicted the return of Christ has been wrong. And by the way, everybody who ever does predict the return of Christ is wrong in a false prophet. Don't listen to them. But you might take the attitude, well, since all of them have been wrong and nobody seems to have it all under control and all the answers and understand eschatology, then It'll pan out and I'll figure it out when Jesus comes again. So it doesn't really mean that much for me now. That apathetic attitude. But what I would share with you this evening is understanding eschatology from a reformed perspective is so very satisfying. That's what I want to convince you of hopefully through this study of Revelation. It is so very satisfying because when I came to read the book of Revelation from a reformed hermeneutic and understanding, the whole book opened up to me. I recognized that the Old Testament was not just for ethnic Israel in the Old Testament times, but for me as well. And this book is written to the church. Apathy. On the other hand, there is a balance. It's one more wrong attitude that we might mention about Revelation, and that is over-infatuation. Over-infatuation. Have you ever met a Christian whose complete theology is built and predicated on eschatology? I mean, everything filters through eschatology. They don't want so much to talk about Christology, the person of Christ, or theology, who is God, or ecclesiology, what the church is, or anthropology, who is man. All of that stuff, their eyes sort of gloss over and they get bored. But talk about some end times and mention John Hagee and get a good C.I. Schofield study Bible out, and they are ready to have a conversation with you. They're infatuated with the end times and consume with it to the, to the detriment of all the other loci and points and categories of rich biblical 
theology such that Revelation seems to be the only book in the Bible that they want to read or talk about. And so what that means practically is they're watching the news every day. They're reading the newspaper, if anybody still does that, every day. And getting online every day and trying to see what's going on in the Middle East and, and what war is going to flare up next. And then flipping through Revelation and saying, I think I found the fulfillment here. And, and they're looking for all this fulfilled prophecy in Revelation and the current times in which they live. And, and there's over-infatuation. So, so guard against these wrong attitudes as we come to study Revelation. Let's not marginalize it. Let's not fear it. Let's not be apathetic, certainly, about it. But let's not be overly infatuated as well. Secondly, and this dovetails right into something we need to discuss as we're clearing the ground, and that is differing approaches to Revelation. Differing approaches to Revelation. And historically, as you look at the history of biblical interpretation in the church, there have been four common approaches to interpreting the events depicted and discussed in the book of Revelation. Now, you might not know some of these terms, and that's okay. But it will help to get your arms around the ideas that are behind them. Uh, one common approach to the book of Revelation is the preterist approach. You ever heard that word? Preterist approach. If you are unfamiliar with preterist eschatology, preterism is simply the view that all things depicted as what we would understand to be end times have already been fulfilled. It's all happened. It's all past. Preterism understands the final eschatological prophecy to be fulfilled in the Bible to have taken place in the year A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. And so preterists would read the book of Revelation, and incidentally what that means is they give it an early date, uh, not to chase too much of a rabbit here, but this is important. One of the debates is when was Revelation written? When was it written? Was it written before A.D. 70 and the destruction of the temple? Or was it a later date, sometime probably in the late 80s or early 90s A.D.? And, and how you understand that figures in deeply and profoundly to how you understand the, the imagery of the book of Revelation. Is there yet unfulfilled prophetic events that Revelation and other parts of the Bible describe to us? The preterist would say no. But I would contend that the preterist argument fails on many other places taught in the New Testament regarding especially and specifically the resurrection of the dead. You remember how the preterist, it seemed, the proto-preterist is what I called the early first preterist, had infiltrated the church at Thessalonica. And they were teaching this heretical doctrine, the resurrection has already passed. It's already happened. It's already taken place. And Paul says, I don't want you to be so soon shaken on this lie that the resurrection has already passed. We're still awaiting the resurrection. And when it happens, buddy, nobody's going to have to wonder. A preterist has to look at the book of Revelation and twist and contort a lot of eschatological language to make it fit their paradigm. How do you get 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, for example, as already having been fulfilled? Paul says, Every eye is going to see him. The graves are going to burst wide open. The trump of God will sound. Everybody's going to hear it and everybody's going to know. It will be no secret thing left up to interpretation. There'll be no need for interpretation for what we believe in our heart. We will see with our eyes when Jesus comes again. So the preterist who takes an early date and sees Revelation fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, in my account, fails to consider not only the material revelation, but the theology of the whole Bible. Secondly, 
there is the historicist, the historicist approach to the book of Revelation. The historicist takes the seven churches that John addresses in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and sees them as iterations, sequential uh, iterations or, or dispensations, if you will, of the eras of the church from the first century until Jesus comes again. Starting with the first church to whom Jesus addressed and ending with the last church that Jesus addresses. And they see the material and judgments of the book of Revelation that follow in chapters 4 through 18 as specifically applicable to each of the seven church churches in their era. And so they might say, that we are living in the Laodicean era. And I don't completely disagree with that, but I also don't agree that there's nothing for our current situation today said to the other six churches. That's the historicist approach. Thirdly, and this is probably the most common, the one with which you are most familiar if you were born and raised in evangelicalism and churches, and that is the futuristic approach to the book of Revelation. The futuristic approach. And the definition of that approach is in its name. It sees everything after chapter 3 as yet future, yet unfulfilled, put off until what they call the Great Tribulation, a seven-year tribulation that takes place beginning at chapter 4, verse number 1, and running to the end of chapter number 18 and flowing into 19. And so the only part in a futuristic interpretation of Revelation, the only part of the book that is applicable for me and you now really is the first three and maybe the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. It puts everything else way out there in the future after a supposed secret rapture. And then fourthly, and that is saving the best for last, the approach that we will take in understanding the book of Revelation, what we would call the idealist, the idealist approach to the book of Revelation. And the idealist approach, even if you don't learn the term, learn the definition, the idealist approach understands the book of Revelation as a whole representing all of church history between the two comings of Christ to the earth, his first and second coming. On the other hand, ideally speaking, though it represents the church in all of history between the two comings of Christ, in part, it does not represent any, listen now, specific historical event. Don't read the book of Revelation and try to find Vladimir Putin. Don't read the book of Revelation and try to find Xi Jinping and China's invasion of Taiwan. Or the United States of America. Or Saddam Hussein. Or Donald Trump. Or Barack Obama. Or September 11th. Or ISIS. Or Kim Jong. Or COVID. Or anything else. Specifically, specifically, now I hope you understand what I'm saying. I am not saying that the book of Revelation doesn't speak to give us insight into those characters and places and things and events that unfold world history. Oh, yes, it does. Revelation helps us to understand what's going on in the world, but it helps us to understand what's going on in the world at all times without referring to any of those specifically. John did not have Joe Biden in mind when he wrote the book of Revelation. He just didn't. So we're talking in ideals here. 
ideally the place of the church in the world and its relationship to the world. All of those are an expression of the truth communicated to us by revelation. And I would contend, and I will contend, that this is the proper approach to interpreting revelation, the one that we will be, as I said, taking in this study. Now that transitions us into something else that we need to touch on. And all these are interrelated, you see. Because if you approach it ideally, which we shall, and not say, for instance, futuristically, then it's going to be, or if you approach it futuristically, say, and not ideally, it's going to be almost predominantly because of your millennial position. So that's the third preliminary consideration, and that is millennial positions regarding the book of Revelation. Maybe you know, and maybe you've heard these terms before, but maybe you know that broadly speaking in the church, there have been and are historically three positions regarding the millennium. Now let me back up just one step and define for you what is meant by millennium because maybe that just went right over your head. What are you talking about a millennium? Okay, a millennium is a thousand years. The millennium is a thousand years, okay? And millennial positions and the disagreement over them, if you want to turn it forward, let's do a good Baptist Bible study and sword drill tonight. Turn to chapter number 20. And this whole debate rages around the interpretation, really, of Revelation chapter number 20. And verse number, let's start at verse number 6. Or we'll just read verse number 6, rather, for time's sake. Revelation chapter 20, verse number 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. You say, Pastor, what is that first resurrection? You should have come last Wednesday night. I explained it to you. But don't worry. When we get here, I'll explain it again. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. That really should define for you what the first resurrection is. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And here it is. Here's the point of debate. They will reign with him for a thousand years. So Revelation 20 pictures the saints ruling and reigning, those who have partaken in the first resurrection, ruling and reigning with Jesus for a thousand years. And from that text, three views of when the thousand years will be have emerged. These are the millennial, the thousand-year positions. The most prominent is the one I'll mention first, the one I was taught in Bible college, the one I came up believing and understanding, and that is premillennialism. Premillennialism. Premillennialism teaches that Jesus will come back, and when he comes back the second time, he will usher in a literal rule of a literal 1,000 years from Jerusalem. Again, this tethers into the futurist approach. The millennium is yet future. And Jesus will come back before, that is pre-the thousand year reign, pre-millennial. Therefore, they understand that one problem that they have is they've got to get the rapture of the church into the book of Revelation. Because premillennialism in its dispensational form teaches that one day there's going to be what we could call a secret rapture. And that will be if you've read the Left Behind books or seen those kinds of movies. If you're familiar with prominent evangelicals such as David Jeremiah, such as John Hagee, the guys who are on TBN and on TV a lot. 
um, they teach this eschatology. That one day, perhaps soon, Jesus will come, but he won't come back to the earth. He will come only in the air. And suddenly and unexpectedly, all the saints, everybody who's saved, will disappear from off the earth. Just like that. Everybody will disappear who belongs to the Lord and will be with the Lord in heaven. And then hell on earth will be unleashed for seven years after that. The saints will be in glory and what they call the great tribulation will happen on earth. At the end of which there will be a second, second coming. Jesus will put down the beast and the false prophet. He will put down every rebel against him and usher in a thousand year golden age. At the end of which they teach will be a battle of Armageddon, a final judgment. And then eternity will come in. But Jesus is coming back pre-millennial, before the millennium. Whenever I was... uh, Still in my premillennialist days, there was a running joke that I remember preachers telling from the pulpit, premillennial dispensational preachers start jumping up and down. He said, y'all know what this is? He said, this is a Presbyterian trying to get off the ground and enjoy the, uh, uh, escape the tribulation when the rapture takes place. And we thought it was funny, but it ain't funny no more because he was wrong. <laughs> but there is premillennialism, okay, that Jesus comes back pre before a literal thousand years. And then, of course, there are two others that are not completely unlike one another. And that is, I'll bring them together, post-millennialism and amillennialism. Post-millennialism and amillennialism. Post-millennialism and amillennialism. Listen now, what's important is not where they diverge is not when they understand the thousand years to be. Post and ah understand the thousand years to be concurrent at the same time, they say. But what they disagree about, post-millennialists and amillennialists, is what will take place during the 1,000 years. Post-millennialists and amillennialists, contra premillennialists, understand the 1,000 years of Revelation 20 to represent a symbolic number of years, an era or epoch that describes a fullness of the church age between, as I've already said, the first and second coming of Christ. In other words, as an amillennialist or a postmillennialist, you recognize that the thousand years referred to in Revelation 20 is not talking about future events, but now events. We are living in the thousand-year reign of Christ. We have been living in the thousand-year reign of Christ ever since he burst the doors of death open and walked out of the tomb and one day he will come again and the thousand years will be ended and his church on earth is ruling and reigning because he's made us a kingdom and priest to his God right now, not future. The victory is already ours. He has secured it. But the postmillennialist says that when Jesus comes back, all the world almost will be Christianized. Christianity will have made such an impact on culture that Jesus will come back to an almost entirely converted world. And so it's an optimistic eschatology. It says that the mission of the church is going to be successful. The gospel is going to go forth and the knowledge of God will cover the world as the waters cover the sea. Whereas the amillennialist is less optimistic, more pessimistic. It looks around at the world reads the book of Revelation and says, I don't see things getting better. I see things getting worse. So that 
at the return of Christ Jesus will return, return just in time, just before the church is destroyed. As it was in the days of Noah, there were only eight in the visible church on earth, eight people who professed faith in the Lord. So it will be when the coming of Christ, as it was in the days of Noah, the church will almost be extinguished off the earth. Will there be faith, Jesus asked, when the Son of Man returns? And so Amillennialism says Jesus is ruling and reigning, but he's going to come back just in the nick of time before his church is completely exterminated off of the earth. Thousand years post and amillennialism are at the same time right now, but the posts are optimistic. The gospel is going to go to the nations and be successful. Amillennialists say, I don't see that in scripture. Now you say, Pastor, which one are you? And hopefully this will be some encouragement because I got to confess, I really don't know. I know I'm not a premillennialist. I am not a premillennialist. Y'all, my heart says postmillennial. Don't you want the world to love Jesus? Don't you want everybody to be saved? Don't you want the knowledge of God to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea? Incidentally, our Puritan and pilgrim forefathers came here because they were post-millennialists. Post-millennialism is a wonderful thing in terms of the impact it's made on the world. Jonathan Edwards recognized historically that the Puritans and pilgrims who settled this nation were looking to build a city on a hill, a nation founded on the principles and truth of God's word and to build a new Zion here in these United States. Now you look what happened and thanks man, amillennialism is making a strong case because it doesn't seem to be going in the right direction. But these are the three millennial positions regarding Revelation. Pre, post, and amillennial. Just one more little uh, nugget to share with you. You think about the post and amillennialism debate. It reminds me of the debate had between Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield, who were the great Princeton professors of yesteryear. And Hodge was a postmillennialist, and Warfield was an amillennialist. And and Warfield would say to Hodge, they said, Jesus is coming back to save the earth. And Hodge would say to Warfield, oh no, he's coming back to a saved earth. And so we should pray that the Lord would indeed save the nations. And you just keep in mind these millennial positions regarding Revelation. If you're a premillennialist, here's why this matters. If you're a premillennialist, nothing in chapters 4 through 18 are for you. Everything in 4 through 18 is depicting a future seven-year tribulation where you and I will not be here. Fourthly, as we hurry, there are two textual interpretations regarding Revelation that we need to keep in mind. Uh, one, of course, touches on the dispensational or premillennial or futurist approach, and that is the chronological um, sequential. That is, the premillennial position reads the book of Revelation as an unfolding chronology. So not only does chapter, say, 19 come before chapter 20 numerically, which we all agree, 19 comes before 20, but they would contend that chapter 19 comes chronologically before chapter 20. So in chapter 19, there's the destruction of the, of the rebels, there's the destruction of the beast, there's the destruction of all those who do not know God, and then in chapter 20, there is the coming of Christ to usher in a literal thousand years. And they say that is chronological. 19 comes numerically and chronologically before 20. On the other hand, and this is the proper biblical, I think, interpretive approach that we shall take as we study the book of Revelation. The textual interpretation regarding Revelation, I think, that is right in the way that it's meant to be understood is the, what I'll call the cyclical recapitulatory, I think I made that word up, 
cyclical, recapitulatory interpretation of the book of Revelation. The way that I conceived of this, um, some years ago, Kristen and I, back when people did this, we rented a movie, and that movie was called Vantage Point. You ever seen this movie, Vantage Point? And Vantage Point is, it's a cool movie. It kind of gets on your nerves a little bit whenever you kind of get in the flow. Okay, this is the kind of movie this is going to be. But Vantage Point is a movie about different vantage points. And what's taking place, as best I remember it is, there's the inauguration uh, or the appearance or speech given by some diplomat, some politician in some country somewhere. And throughout the movie, you get different vantage points because there's an assassination attempt made on his life. They, they try to kill him. As he's given the speech, they try to kill him. And so it starts out with a tourist. I think it's Forrest Whitaker. And Forrest Whitaker is filming with his video camera. And he's out in the audience. And he's watching the speech and he's filming the speech. And you hear the gunshot and you see the man go down and you see the security. And then when all of it unfolds, then, then the video rewinds. And next, you move to a different vantage point. Next, you're one of the security guards up on the stage. It's the same event. And you're standing beside the man giving the speech. And you're looking around at any possible threat and you find the threat. And he, he is the shooter and, and all the mayhem ensues and the event takes place. Then it rewinds again. And now you're from the vantage point of the assassin up in the window. Again, same event, different perspective. And so the whole movie is about these different vantage points, the way that things are viewed from different angles of the same event. Now I say that to say that is exactly how we are to understand the book of Revelation. It is cyclical or recapitulatory and it moves through, believe it or not, as this number is so prominent in Revelation, seven cycles of history between the two comings of Christ from different vantage points, from different angles. Let me just give you an example of what I mean. The first cycle, and by the way, every cycle ends with the end of time. Every cycle ends with a different perspective of what's going to happen when Jesus comes again. The first cycle begins at chapter 4, verse number 1, and ends, flip over here, to chapter 8, verse number 1. Chapter 8, verse number 1. Here's one vantage point of the last day. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there's the last day, there's the final judgment. There was silence in heaven. Remember what Paul says in Romans, every mouth will be stopped on the judgment day and they will stand before God. The seventh seal is open, silence in heaven for about a half an hour. All of heaven is silent and nobody speaks but the judge of the universe. 4-1 through 8-1, that's the first vantage point of the cycle of history between the two comings of Christ. The second cycle that starts at 8-2 ends at 11-19. Fast forward there, chapter number 11, verse number 19. Then God's temple was opened. After what? Look at chapter 11, verse number 15. Seventh angel now, here's the trumpet judgments blows his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever there's the last day there's the final judgment and God's temple was opened verse number 19 and the ark of his covenant was seen God is with his people that is and there were flashes of lightnings rumbling peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail awesome terrible terrifying and glorious judgment that will end when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of our Christ and then it rewinds one more time and cycles through and gives a different perspective of history that ends with chapter 13 
and verse number 10. Chapter 13, verse number 10. This is a depiction of the awful state of man after final judgment in hell. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Your eternal state is unchangeably fixed. Once you have been judged, once you have entered into judgment, once you pass from this life to the next, there's no more grace, there's no more hope, there's no more promise, there's no more opportunity. If you are captive, you will be captive forever. If you are slain, you will suffer the second death. And then there's this pastoral word, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Don't give up, church. Endure until the end. That's another perspective and way of understanding the return of Christ. And and it cycles through these seven different times. Cyclical, recapitulatory interpretation regarding the book of Revelation. And then finally, as we close, let me share with you a couple of critical insights from the book of Revelation that will help us in understanding and interpreting this book. There's really three that I could think of as I thought through um, our study and beginning our study of this book. Critical, a couple of critical insights, two or three. Number one, you've got to understand this, church. The book of Revelation is a picture book. It is not, I say that to contrast it with this, it is not a puzzle book. And it certainly is not a math book. It doesn't have secret codes built into it. The numbers aren't for us to try to figure secret codes out and foment and forge dates for the return of Christ. It is a picture book. It's a coloring book for those who are most infantile in their faith. You know, we read Revelation, we think it's so difficult, it's so, it's so mysterious, it's so hard. And God is saying, I've given the church a coloring book to show what spiritual warfare is like. It's like Satan's kingdom is like this wicked dragon with, with seven heads and ten horns. I mean, what three and four-year-old with a vivid imagination can't see the evil of Satan when they, when they hear of a, a dragon and a beast and a false prophet and these these hideous locust creatures that come up. It's God giving you the picture of the malice of the enemy of your soul, his hatefulness, but of his power over it and his sovereignty over history and his love for you and his preservation of you in beautiful, technicolor, vivid pictures. It's a picture book. It's not a puzzle book. You don't have to have some Gnostic, secret, special knowledge to understand the book of Revelation. You don't have to be a mathematician with a degree in calculus and geometry to understand the book of Revelation. It's pictures for me and for you. I mean, if you're living in the first century and Nero, for instance, or one of the Roman emperors has just lit your mother on fire to light his garden and laughed. You don't need anybody to explain to you what a beast is. What an antichrist is. You see him in action. It's pictures. Secondly, this is important too. Numbers symbolically play an enormous role in this book. There are several numbers that recur over and over and over when you read the book of Revelation and they're not meant to be understood woodenly, literalistically. For instance, the number three 
the number three because Revelation is about the Trinity. It is about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see that in the opening prologue. Notice in chapter 1, verse number 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. Here's one who was, who is, and who is to come. That is God the Father. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. More on that next time. That is the Holy Spirit though, so far for now. And from Jesus Christ, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or chapter 1, skip down to verse number 7. Behold, Jesus is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will well because of him. Three functions of the return of Christ. Everybody will see him, those who pierced him, and all the tribes will mourn because of him. Or look over at chapter 3, for instance, and verse number 14. Jesus gives these self-styled titles for his own messianic ministry to the angel of the church of Laodicea, right? The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. And then chapter 4, verse number 5. Here we read, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. There are repetitive occurrences of the number 3 to to really drive home that you are to worship the true and living God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, there's even a warning about an unholy trinity, the beast, the false prophet, and the antichrist, Satan's cheap imitation of God that would lure you away, the allurement and charm of the world and the flesh and the devil that is anti-God and anti-Christ and anti-everything that is holy. So three is a critical symbolic number in the book to remind you of the triune nature of the God you worship and serve. Secondly, a seven, of course. Seven is a prominent number in Scripture, especially in the book of Revelation. There are the seven spirits of God, is, which is a, a, a way of saying, a poetic way of describing the Holy Spirit. And that's taken from the book of Isaiah. Seven spirits of God. There are seven seal. There are seven trumpet. There are seven bowl judgments. There are seven lampstands. There are seven churches. There are seven dragons. Seven, the number of fullness and completion. Satan is fully committed to destroying God and his people, but God is fully and completely committed to loving and preserving and bringing them all the way to glory. Seven. And then maybe you've already thought about this one in Revelation, the number 12. The number 12. Because in the rest of the Bible, 12 is an important number. 12 apostles are referenced, 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 foundations of the new city, the heavenly Jerusalem. It has 12 gates, and at each gate there is an angel, 12 angels. There's 12,000 stadia that measures the length of the new Jerusalem. It has 144, 12 times 12 cubit wall, 144,000 army of the Lamb. That is the entire church, which touches on the fourth important number that I want to mention. That's the number 1,000. 1,000. That is the number of chapter number 20. A thousand year millennium. And that is the number of the Lamb's fair army who are sealed and protected from chapter 7. 12,000, it is said, from each tribe comprising 144,000. And you ask yourself, is this 144,000 literal people? Listen, absolutely not. It's you and it's me. And it's the entire people of God. Then why does it say 144,000? Because it's 12 times 12 times 1,000. 
representing all of God's church who are sealed and who are in the army of the Lord. So three, seven, twelve, and a thousand. Keep that in mind as we go through the book. The numbers symbolically play an enormous role. Just as we don't understand a dragon literally appearing as a forced agent of Satan, so we don't understand the numbers literally to represent sequential numbers of years, but symbolic, picturesquely. And then finally, as we close, let me mention this as a critical insight, and I think it is most important. The Old Testament. The Old Testament saturates the book of Revelation. It occurred to me, you know, I think, I think a lot of people don't really, the, the language of Revelation seems so foreign to a lot of Christians, and you know why that is? They don't know their Old Testament. They don't pick up and read their Bible. They're not steeped in the Old Testament like John was when he wrote the book of Revelation. Listen, every one, every one of the 39 books of the Old Testament is referenced or alluded to in the book of Revelation. The most frequent, of course, are Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the book of Psalms. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the book of Psalms, which is why I want to start a study of Ezekiel whenever I finish the book of Galatians on Sunday morning because it goes hand in hand with the book of Revelation. But the judgments, for instance, reminisce the ten plagues of Egypt. The language of the ten plagues executed on Pharaoh, the Antichrist of the Old Testament, is brought up again in the seal and bowl judgments of the book of Revelation. So if there's one takeaway for this evening I can leave with you is this. Church, the Old Testament is so important. So important for understanding the book of Revelation. There's 404 verses, 404 verses in the book of Revelation and over 1,000 either direct or indirect references or allusions to the Old Testament. And what I hope that we have accomplished this evening, if nothing else, is that you want to know more about this glorious book, is that your appetite is wet. Tell me more, preacher. Preach it to me. And that's a good thing. You want to know why? Let's close here. Chapter 1, verse number 3. We are promised a blessing in reading and studying this book. Chapter 1, verse number 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Blessed are we when we read it. Blessed are we when we hear it. Blessed are we when we hear, hide it in our hearts. Blessed are we eternally. For our Jesus lives and reigns and is coming again. Amen. Let us pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you for this book of Revelation. That is such a beautiful punctuation to Holy Scripture. It shows us that our God is in control. That nothing is out of his control. Nothing is out of his purview. And that, Lord, we can trust you. And you have secured our endurance and inheritance in heaven one day. And that there's coming a day, Lord, when everything that has caused pain and tears will be a distant memory. How we look forward to that. Thank you, Lord, for this revelation of your son oh reveal him before our eyes let us see him in all his glory and in all his beauty to love him more to serve him better in jesus name we ask amen and amen let us stand together shall we